0: On the show today, Dr. Young Zhao, here to talk about his latest book, Learning Without Borders, New Pathways for All Students, which was published in July 2021. As a young boy growing up in a small rural farming village in China, Dr. Young Zhao learned many things about himself. His father recognized from an early age that traditional farm work wasn't really Young's thing so he decided to send Young to school so that he could learn skills that might help to one day serve the family. At the time, Chairman Mao, the ruling leader of China, had sparked one of the biggest revolutions in modern Chinese history, and this greatly impacted what Young learned in school and how he learned it. As a student, Young began to develop a deep love of reading and took every opportunity possible to read as much as he could. Whether it be the daily newspaper or old, tattered, and torn books didn't really matter to Young. He just wanted to read. Young became known as having a unique talent and strength that not many in his village had, so he would go on to serve his family and the village in very special ways. This helped to really shape the path that Young took in his life and led him to pursuing a career in education that would ultimately take him across the ocean to America. Young is a firm believer that school systems have failed and continue to fail the youth of today. And in his own words, he says that educators and schools always start with the curriculum with what children will become or what they should become but we should always start with the child I would like everyone to see the child before they see the curriculum and how they can help the child grow how can I help this child create value for others start with the child and ask what are you interested in what are you good at, and how can I help you become this, and how can I turn the unique strengths that you have and interests into something valuable for others? In our conversation, we explore multiple layers of Young's life and work, but in particular, we take a deep dive into his recent book, Learners Without Borders, New Learning Pathways for All Students, which was published in July of 2021. His book is a call to action. It is intended for educators, education, policymakers, parents, and students to imagine a different kind of learning, learning that is owned by the students. This book has many examples of the forms and formats of the new learning, as well as examples of how to make such learning happen, But it is not his intention to present a step-by-step prescription for all educators and schools to make that change. He strongly believes that educators, school leaders, parents, and students are all capable of making significant and meaningful changes when they are inspired and motivated. He also strongly believes that contexts matter. Different classes and schools should, and can, make different changes. He wants this book to inspire and motivate people to take action to make those big changes. It was a genuine pleasure and an honor to interview Dr. Zhao. He is not only recognized as one of the most influential educational scholars, But also, his writing has greatly impacted the field of education, and his work has made a huge difference in so many schools around the world. Wherever you are listening to this right now, I hope you find valuable takeaway that you can immediately apply in your own life and the work that you do in education. So with that, let's jump right into my conversation with Dr. Young Zhao talking about early days in his life. Okay it is fantastic uh, Dr. Zhao to have you on the show. I really uh, appreciate your time and we were able to kind of have a short conversation uh, before I hit record and uh, just to kind of get to know one another a little bit but uh, in advance to our conversation I really want to thank you for your time and energy today.
1: Thank you Andy. Uh, It's just Happy to be here. So let's have a great conversation. Sure. And I really, I'm
0: interested in your life story. And one of the things that fascinates me is why people ultimately end up on the path that they are in life. And in particular, early days. And I would love for you to set the context here for the listeners and to share what early life was like for you, but in particular, the big life lessons that you learned. That would eventually go on to serve you so well in your career and education.
1: Well, you know, uh, Andy, I, I grew up in a in a village, and uh, so um, that's um, very interesting. You know, because I was I grew up running very poor uh, times, and. Uh, I was not doing well with, uh, you know, all the farming work, So that's uh, my father son said, oh, why don't you go to school? But during that's during Cultural Revolution, there are not many, um, you know, a lot of great um, educational. I, I wouldn't call they are best schools. You know, you go to school, there's no textbooks, you know, and you have one teacher who taught multiple grades, you know. And but for me, school served as a sanctuary, you know. Uh, away from the village, and and my father and, and everybody else, you know, uh, were supportive. But you know, they 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 could not be as to this Chinese parents tell me what to do. So after second grade, I was really mostly on my own and uh, doing my own work. So I think the important thing I learned from that is that uh, uh, children all are looking for sanctuaries. They need to get away from what they feel bad. They need to find a place that where they feel good. You know, so, um, so what they need is really uh, a place where teachers make them feel they can make a contribution. They can do something. Like I was doing really bad in the village. If the village were a curriculum, I would be the worst kind of student, but luckily there was school. So in school, I feel like, you know, I can read and I could do something. And that reading is valued. So that's why today I encourage all parents, all schools, try to focus on what their children can do and start from there to have an education.
0: Yeah, what I love, and I I, I quote, and I I wrote it down, uh, is that schools are obsessed with fixing deficits rather than enhancing uniqueness. And I love that. And that is so special in my heart because that's why I've chosen to do the work I do in education. But can you just elaborate on that quote and the importance of schools, instead of being focused on fixing deficits, to really focus on enhancing the uniqueness of each child, as you say, so they can then go on to serve others through their gifts and talents?
1: Well you know uh, the the big thing is this we need we need to acknowledge parents and teachers and school leaders that every child no matter what that child is has some strength you know innate abilities uh, past experiences and that strength is not always triggered in schools and uh, so that's the most important thing with how do you open up new spaces, experiences for every child to feel they're good at something, and that goodness is valuable to other people? I don't think we do enough of that. We keep up. We have a curriculum. We have standards. We have national testing or standardized testing to show children what they're not good at. But we need to focus on say, the strength based. I've written quite a lot about strength based education. No matter what you believe, you should always make children feel they are doing something good, and their something good is contributing to other people's lives. So, if in every school, if you can do that, will be great.
0: Yeah, and one quote in particular that um, I, I wrote down here that really resonated with me, which uh, is a is perfect to back up what you just said. Um, what you said mm-hmm. is that ed- educators and schools always start with the curriculum, with what children will become or what they should become, but we should always start with the child. I would like everyone to see the child before they see the curriculum and how they can help the child grow, how I can help this child create value for others. So start with the child and ask, what are you interested in? What are you good at? and how can i help you become this so when you think of that quote and you think of yourself as a young child growing up into a teenager how are you unique and what unique strengths do you think you were able to develop within yourself to
1: thrive in the world well i think that's uh, fairly easy for me because when i was growing up in the countryside in the village and uh, there wasn't much schooling so um what I feel I was good is reading, so I could read whatever books available. I could do that, and somehow I turned my reading abilities and getting more information. I was able to contribute to to the village, to my fathers, you know, all these things, and so so that really kept me going uh, for a long time. So that that's really important for me. But also, also you have to as a person. Not necessarily the whole entire society was endorsing me. So you have to believe that. You have to help each child have, belief, have to develop the belief they're good at something. That's what I think schools and parents can do.
0: So when you talk about uh, the strength of reading, were you widely read? Did you read mostly fiction, nonfiction? Did, did you read to learn about the world?
1: well there's uh uh not much to read in, the, in when i was growing up you know the biggest uh library i had was uh the uh, used books and newspapers my father collected when he was running his noodle shop so there were a lot of books so i had to read them because i uh, they have to use the paper to wrap up the book you know, noodles for sale so <laughs> i gotta read them fast and come early so i read a, there was no selection, no planning. I read all kinds of things, you know. Um, so that's that's really a big thing. I mean, this is why I got a really curiosity in reading because, uh, you know, a lot of the books I had access to uh, were losing pages, losing covers, you know, all those things. So I had to make guesses of those things. But also, you know, the Cultural Revolution, the Chinatown, not many books. Chairman Mao's selected works, you know, uh, historical stories that embedded in Chairman Mao's works, and it helped. So to me, was a broad access to a lot of things, but a lot of things were ra- really random, you know. Yeah. And do you think
0: that this helped
1: you to develop curiosity? I think I was curious, you know, but but then this, of course, you know, uh, get me to be more excited about all these things. You know, I was really Perhaps the, the the only child in my village was into this kind of thing. So in that way, you are unique and special. But at the same time, I want to say you got to recognize I was really bad at everything else.
0: Yeah. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you, like you've written, you know, I, I lost count, to be honest, but I think something around twenty. 20 books, 21 books, uh, something like yeah. that. But what I wanted to ask you was uh, your journey of writing when you first put pen to paper, your one of your first books w- uh, was in 2003. But in particular, one of the books that meant a lot to you, I'm sure they all meant a lot to you. But in 2009, you wrote Catching Up or Leading the Way, was it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask you, you know, and your latest book in July twenty twenty one is Learners Without Borders, and I want to yes. ask you what you feel the your biggest change in your own learning was from your two thousand and nine book to now and to your most recent book.
1: Well, in uh, in uh, um in a uh, two thousand nine, I was really the the book called Catching Up or Leading Away was. Really, one of my first books to deal with education policies, because at that time I was looking at uh, East Asian countries and Western countries such like U.S., Canada or Australia. And there seems to be a very strange uh, feeling. Today, it still happens, you know, like uh, Australia and uh, you know U.S. kept writing about how they have to become more Shanghai more China, more Japan, more Singapore, because they have better international test scores. And East Asian countries said, we want to become more America because they have more creativity and more innovation. So there seems to be, well, if you move to Hawaii, things become better. I said, this is not right. I said, you know, if you are moving ahead, you should not look back. You should not look back to catch up with someone. You should continue to lead the way, to drive forward, you know, so that's, uh, that's the, the, the main thing. So is that you know, we live, I, I, as I wrote in the book, we live now in a, um, in a new world. And the world is what I call the global world, globalized and the digital. So we should not be worried about the past, we should worry about the future, and therefore we should lead the way and try to drive education forward. And so that's, that's really, really the big piece. And now, you know, I wrote a book called Learners Without Borders. Many Israelis about how technology has transformed the education, especially uh, during uh, COVID, uh, COVID. You know, this is uh, uh, it's very important to think about how today children uh, can truly learn without schooling controlling them the borders are you know, you have test scores you have grades you have uh, you know all the teachers you have class we have so many borders controlling students but today you can truly liberate yourself outside and to drive your own education so children needs to become owners of their learning they can learn by peer tutoring. They can learn online from other places. So it's really a different kind of education I was proposing. And it's not about um about, about something that you can uh you can think about just teaching in schools, but it is really to drive children into a globalized learning ecosystem. Yeah, which
0: obviously changes the not the roles and responsibilities of of teachers and educational leaders but it definitely requires a reframing of the way teachers deliver their teaching and learning in the classroom for sure and the way leaders lead schools and before we get into the book I, I want to commend you on your fantastic TED talk every child is Rudolph and you know I'm a big I, I was lucky enough to do a TED talk myself and I know that the the time and energy that I put into it and and I love TED Talks. But I must admit that your TED talk was the very first TED talk I ever saw where the speaker had the audience get up and sing a song in the first minute. <laughs> that was fantastic. So, uh, for those that haven't seen it, you got everybody to get up. It was in Holland, I think, right?
1: Amsterdam. Yes, yeah, so that's yeah. In Amsterdam. Yeah,
0: yeah. And you got up, and you got the audience to sing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And and your talk, um, you use the Rudolph story as a metaphor, and that's what I want you to share right now. Is um, what was that process like for that talk and and how did you come up with the idea of Rudolph and the red nose and and to uh, use it as a metaphor for the changes needed to ensure all kids thrive in school?
1: Well, and I think you know if you think about the stories, it's really very much like me. you know you you, you have something special, but that special is treated as uh, as abnormality. And uh, so, so he was not liked by people. It's like me. You know, I, I was, I was good at something, but that's not necessarily uh, uh, what's valued, you know, at the moment. But you couldn't do something else. So, but later on, you know, Santa Claus came. You know, a root of the the redness, you know, becomes really, really. Uh, valuable, you know, uh, otherwise our children in the world wouldn't get their gifts, right? So, so that, that so that, that is, I, I think it's an amazing story to, to think from that angle, you know, that is uh, your uniqueness can be valuable and can be extremely valuable when the time comes. So, I think, you know, that i have telling the world has changed. It can truly make use of every human talent. You know, if you have a human talent, if you can become so great and so special, you become truly valuable. And so that's really not a story about me, a story about all the children who don't think they can do well in school. Remember, schools only really value certain types of talent. And it's very limited. It's very narrow. So I've been thinking a lot about how Rudolph gives us us the lesson to think about going beyond you know i would say like a christmas has arrived for every child and of course you know i i you know the uh, christmas is not necessarily celebrated in every part of the world you know we have different religions but in that story itself is valuable yeah yeah it's such a great metaphor and
0: when you when you think of schools uh what should schools be doing to develop an innovative adaptable entrepreneurial mindset like what should they be doing now to to pre- better prepare kids for the for the world that's coming and 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 uh, make them more innovative and adaptable and
1: entrepreneurial. Well, I think you know they are. You should really first start with every child recognizing that they have the capacity to be entrepreneurial. Entrepreneur, you can start a business. You can start your own ideas. Is to go back to the idea that emphasizing everybody has strength. Everybody has talents. Everybody has passion, and the strength and passion can contribute to other people by solving other people's problems. Because uh, you know, nowadays we have so many problems. Every society's problems. But children should be engaged with those problems. And if you engaged with a problem, if you come up with a solution, that makes you quite entrepreneurial. I think in today's education, our problem, Andy, is that. Uh, um, We teach, we teach them something, but we do not, like you said before, invite the children to become owners of their own learning. If you are the owner of your own learning, that's a huge enterprise to manage. You know, you manage your own enterprise, but now we have schools. You you look at schools, we have teachers, we have textbooks, we have testing, we have curriculum. Students are so reduced. And they really don't have to do anything other than following the teacher. So you're telling them to solving, I mean, not even solving a the problem. They are, they are living in certainty and using certain solutions to solve certain problems. But the future is uncertain. The future requires this idea of creativity, entrepreneurship. So my view is that you take your ideas of who you are, your strength your passion, and then you use your entrepreneurship abilities to translate what you are able to do into solutions to problems in the world and of other people. And that is entrepreneurship.
0: And that ability to do that transcends disciplines and blurs the
1: the space between disciplines. Right, exactly. And also you, you learn to solve problems. You learn, actually, you learn first to identify problems worth solving. It's beyond just solving. It's you identify a problem and that's a lot of learning. Imagine all the scientists when they're discovering problems, it's not really necessarily following all textbooks. And if you discover a problem, then you try to refine the problem. That's a lot of learning. I don't think schools do that enough right now.
0: Yeah. So in your ideal vision and moving towards that vision and making it a reality what do you feel that educational leaders principals directors of schools and teachers in the classroom need to let go of within themselves in order to create that environment that allows students those differentiated entry points to learning and um, in order to help them thrive What do they need to let go of within themselves Like now, right now What do they need to let go of?
1: Well, I think they need to let go of uh, the belief Whatever they're teaching is valuable I think we should always question What we're teaching is valuable for all children So that's why I've said Look at the child more Than you look at the curriculum Because right now, you know A lot of teachers, they they have to, to teach And they have to teach Whatever is prescribed in the textbook. They have a pacing guide. They have to do this. But really question yourself, is what you're teaching relevant? Is what you're teaching valuable? Or you can try to change to look at child, you know, look at uh, um, this child and say, maybe what does this child need? What does child want to do? What, what's the strength of this child? I think really lose uh, a lot of uh, what we try to teach. Look at the child more than you look at the curriculum. The second thing is that, um, you know, we give assessment all the time. Uh, and the assessment we have to think about, you're really only assessing a very short-term instruction outcome. You, you know, all the other important abilities we call curiosity, creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, you know, growth mindset, great, all those important things that last for life was never assessed. So you're only focused on did you remember what I tell you? That's, but that really doesn't really almost matter. That's why you know, Andy. I'm sure you know you don't remember many things you learned in elementary school, or high school. You probably have emotional moments you remember, but not the content. So, so the, what, what's important is to say, pay less attention to that scores. You know, if I were teaching, I would give everybody you know, uh, problem an A, uh, but, it, but as long as they finish the work, you know, maybe, you, know you you want to guide children into iterative process of improving themselves, not improving on the curriculum. So our biggest enemy, really, in school is the curriculum. You know, the curriculum requires everybody go through this. That's why you have talented education, you have special education, because we want to homogenize. But what my view is to say, let's not homogenize students. Let's really focus on who they are. So how should we begin thinking about
0: assessment differently um, in order to genuinely develop world-class learners? So this is what I'm struggling with, to be honest. So I'm an, I'm an instructional coach. So although I'm teaching a little bit, most of my work is in instructional coaching and I love working alongside teachers, helping them to think about what's possible. And when it comes to assessment, I have my views, but as a coach, I can't push my views on the teacher. So I have to have conversations with them to get them thinking about what's possible in regards to assessment. So what is your advice to teachers and educational leaders when it comes to assessment in this day and age and how to assess?
1: Well, I think, you know, this is what you're raising is actually a very significant question. And I got asked all the time is that how do we do it? It is very difficult to do, Andy, because uh, teachers have been trained to teach the way they're taught. Teachers are regulated to teach the way they're taught. You know, if you say, "Oh, I'm not going to use a textbook. I'm not use the standards. I'm not use the curriculum," a lot of people question you. Even parents might question you to say, "Why do you do that?" You know, and school leaders, of course, you have to be responsible, but. To get started i've always advised you can start with the the poor kids the kids who are not doing well the kids who are not engaged well i'm sure every school may have 10 25 percent 10 percent 25 percent of kids who are really not benefiting if they're not benefiting can you think of something different you know even assessment you know i'm not going to assess what you've mastered i'm going to assess what you've done right you know say so, you no know, in like uh That's the beginning of the semester, you write an essay, end of the semester, you write the same essay. I won't say, how much have you improved Mm -hmm. on that piece, right? And so that's different, um, a product. So you assess how each child has grown in their own way and, but also, what, what's the point of assessment? If you think about this, we, we pay attention to assessment so much. Kindergarten, uh, elementary school, every grade to middle school to high school to college. What's the point of assessment? It has no implication for your future, at, at least until high school. Why do you want to assess? You know, the assessment becomes more of a comparison. You compare your child with other child, you know. So, you know how is Johnny doing versus Mary, and, and, and it doesn't really have any real meaning. You want to know how Johnny has grown, how Mary has grown. It's not Johnny is better than Mary, Mary is better than Johnny. You know, but in and in schools we tend to have that comparison. So I would really encourage giving up on assessing young children, but really look at their portfolio, look what they've done, look at what they what their point is, you know, so that's really the main thing.
0: And the idea like we're working on this year, we're really uh, focusing on universal design for learning and in particular, um, really diving into this idea of um, giving kids multiple means uh, to represent their learning. And mm-hmm. I think that's a nice way for us this year to begin to have the these deeper assessment Uh, conversations, because really it's about uh, providing multiple means of representation to the kids so that they can choose to demonstrate their learning in multiple different ways. It's not just the narrative essay, but they can choose to uh, show their understanding in in multiple ways. So how does that resonate with you?
1: Well, UDL is a powerful tool, uh, but UDL does not expand the content so it's a tool you know that that is good you know udl is used in the existing curriculums so you're learning math you're learning science you're learning it's, it's a very powerful tool multiple you know multiple uh multiple uh, tools multiple representations different ways i i love it it's a great great you know approach but i think education needs a bigger revolution mm-hmm. that is more than uh improving the process but rather than to say what does it mean for each and every child? Mm-hmm. I just have seen so many children failing schools, but they shouldn't be failed. Schools not, should not be there to judge people, but which has been judging people, schools should be there to help everybody grow.
0: Do you think that that assessment piece can be replaced in a way with every opportunity possible to give timely feedback?
1: Uh... How does that feedback is different from assessment? So like, for example, uh, and you can say, imagine, you know, a lot of teachers like to write feedback to students Mm -hmm. and they give a grade, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, in writing. Most likely when you have a grade attached to the writing, students will not read the feedback. You know, I've I've been doing uh, I've been helping Ph.D. students to grow their write Mm -hmm. dissertations. So you you don't really give them a grade. It's just in the end, if the past is past. You have a high quality expectation. And so you help them revise, revise, reiterate. So they will read your feedback with that when you do not give them a grade, because your feedback is for them to grow, to become better. But as soon as you give them assessment, you give them a grade, that's called assessment, they stop improving because they think that's a task. I'm done. I'm done with it. Why would I want to improve? What do I get out of this improvement business? Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I once had a professor on the show pre-service. He taught pre-service teachers and what he really believed in. And he did it for like the last 30 years of his career was he would encourage his pre-service teachers. Yes. To give a test. Of course you have to give a test, but then give the test again and allow kids in groups to complete the test together. Right. And then, then the kids could choose which mark they wanted.
1: Yeah. I think beautiful is that. Exactly. You know, that's, I think you have a lot of, you know, great ideas. I think one big thing, you know, uh, I want to emphasize on is uh, allowing students the opportunities to choose what they might be interested in and what might be good at and enable them to use that and to develop better you know you know i'm good at this but no one you know even a genius cannot truly become a genius without time without working on it so you 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 can start as oh i'm so good at writing but, you know, no genius can write well just with the first piece of writing. You got to improve. So you kept improving those kind of things. And, but I think school was emphasis too much again on curriculum, on trying to drive that piece. You know, when you have a curriculum, you're making a guess about the children's future to say, well, you know, in the future you will need this. But how true is that? We can't be true. Even Saudi Arabia, you see a lot of big changes, a lot of things happening, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, let's take the last, uh, we've got about
0: 15 minutes left, 15, 17 minutes. Let's take these last. uh, a few minutes to really dive into your book, Learning Without Borders, uh, New Learning Mm -hmm. Pathways for All Students. So this came out in July 2021. And what I would love you to talk about is what your process was like for writing this book and, and how were you able to take ideas from inside of your head, think about that, process those ideas, and then ultimately put pen to paper. So what was that
1: process like for you writing this book? Well, this book has been going on for a long time. It's before the COVID pandemic. You know, I had um, after writing so many books, and I really come to recognize what's controlling students and teachers. It's the entire education system. Remember, we build a system. They're all like borders, like walls that control all students. You know, students of the same age have to be in the same class. That's a border. But you, you know, teachers know, parents know, children of in one year actually are different, right? You know, you, know, you okay. think about a five, six-year-old, and not one person could be seven already, you know, just one day difference. You know, the school decides on a day arbitrary, and you go back another year. So that doesn't really work, but we accept it. Hmm. And then if you think about uh, a curriculum, every student has to go through first grade, second grade, and then first grade is getting ready for second grade. But how true is that? You have children come in first grade, they can read at third grade level. Why do you keep them that way? So you use age to control. And then, you know, today we have teachers who really have access to YouTube, to all, I me mean, to Khan Academy, to TED Talks, to so many resources, but why does one teacher still teach one teach a group of students? And so that, that is another kind of issue. Then you also have so many students, you know, when they start young entrepreneurship, when they're 13, 14, but they still have to go finish the school. So, so, and also globally speaking, you know, you want your students go to college, but really, you can get a college education with or without going to college. You have so many colleges, so many online. So I, I had those ideas. I said, OK, how does this work? And then, you know, one day we are, I'm running a TV show called Silver Lining for Learning with a group of colleagues from different uh, uh, universities. We had a group of students from Nepal. They're really uh, they're 13, 14 year old. So they've been taken courses online, taking those uh, books, you know, Mass 70 open online courses. And I look at the students, they are in Nepal, a poor, small country, and but they are learning from this, uh, you know, courses offered by Harvard, by, you know, uh, Stanford, and it's free. So it's, it's amazing. They are learning. They're not only learning English, they're learning the content. So this is shocking. So I began to, to do that. I said, okay, how does this happen? And I began to do more research on like a, a tutorial in Mexico. That's a Richard Elmer wrote about that is that children learn a lot by tutoring each other. You don't need a teacher to do this. And so, so I began looking for stories, for examples. And so the whole idea is that uh, teachers, don't get me wrong, are still very valuable, hmm. but they should not become what I call teaching machines. They should become human educators. Their best interest is not to pass on the information or explain things. Their best is to become a personal coach, to cultivate the students, and also to curate resources for all students. So that's really, I, I wrote about this book, is about if students are freed from the borders, if they are allowed and supported to learn on their own, Uh, if that's important to learn globally, what would it be like? So that's this book.
0: Yeah. And uh, there's there's one quote that I just want to read, which you say in this book, I am interested in presenting the future of learning, which is possible today. The future of learning is students participating in a global learning ecosystem with the support of their local schools. And in this new ecosystem, students will be liberated from the borders of the previous failed system. So that's right. a really powerful statement. So just speak to that. And then I want to dive into some of the chapters.
1: Well, first of all, of course, Andy, we've got to acknowledge this. The previous education system truly has failed. You know, even in the U.S., you notice that you, we've done so many education reforms. It has not solved the problem. It did not improve children, did not close the achievement gap, you know, all those things. So, uh, you know, one of the big things is that in you know, action globally, look at the PISA data, the international tests, uh, not everybody has improved it. So they're playing with the data, but generally speaking, education has not improved. But that is one failure. Another big failure is that no education system knows how to take care of children, you know, in, in, in diversity. You, you make a few children succeed, but you have a lot of children get disengaged from school, failed school, drop out of school, and that's a huge waste of human talents. Then we have another problem. You know, the future requires our children to develop these more broader twenty first century skills. You know, like you know, again, creativity, collaboration, all those kind of things. But no school is technically doing that how do you do that they don't know you know we open a creativity course but creativity course does not necessarily work it's an educational process that enables everyone to go through so to to change this you need the students to become change partners you need to become change agents we need to involve the students education reforms and changes have always done by governments by adults you know we do this to our children but today with the global access, with a smart device, children have a lot more they can learn from with or without adults. So adults need to change our roles.
0: And, and you and I talked about, so I told you that I taught at Nanjing International School and you visited the school, so you're familiar with it. And um, the director of the school, Laurie McClellan, really made an attempt early on a number of years ago to begin involving students in the design of the school and to involve their voice and involve their feedback and make them an active part of constructing this vision for the future school. And I really thought that was commendable and that's why Nanjing International School still stands out to me as being such an innovative school. And I'm eternally grateful for having worked there, but I just wanted to mention that because you had uh, visited that school.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the, uh, Laurie, uh, I like him a lot. I and mean, I think it's, uh, you know, if you think about designing, involving students, uh, I would like to add, you can, you know, students can design two parts. One is their own learning. What are they interested in? what How would you like to learn? How would you improve yourself? And then they have to design the learning environments because you know nobody really learns on their own everybody learns with other people so that's a social learning part of it Mm -hmm. so you can co-design an environment you can vote you can make decisions but at the same time you have two parts one is your own learning another one is the school environment Mm -hmm. yeah
0: absolutely so um young there's eight chapters in the book okay so chapter one new possibilities the failure of educational reforms uh, chapter mm-hmm. two the school pathway chapter three new learning opportunities chapter four changing the school pathway chapter yeah. five breaking the curriculum border futile efforts chapter mm-hmm. six breaking the classroom border chapter seven self-directed learners and chapter eight, bringing it all together, making the change, learning without borders, advocating for the right outcomes. So I wanted to ask you in particular, what did you mean by advocating for the right outcomes? That last
1: chapter. Well, that's really has to do with education because again, education has become such a big business. You know, we've been assessing, we've been measuring a lot of outcomes. But many of the outcomes we measure, like I said before, are short-term instructional. You know, did you remember what this book told you? Do you remember what this? So that's not the right outcome. The right outcome is, does every school, does every education system cultivate people who will become self-confident, who will become creative, who will become entrepreneurial, who knows what their strengths are, who are eager to solve problems for other people and the world? So that's the right outcome. So how do you cultivate that? That's not, not done by teaching. You know, in education, we have the really bad habit of saying, if we think something is important, we're going to teach it. You don't, you know, you, you really don't teach it. Students grow with that. And that is a really important thing, Andy. That is, a, you know, we say, oh yeah, creativity is important. Let's teach it, but how do you teach it? You know, entrepreneurship is good. Let's run entrepreneurship club. It's not like that. Education is a lifelong experience. You fail, you pick up yourself, you change, you define. It's a refining process of yourself. You know, you refine yourself, and education is to create space for that. And that assessment is much, much later. You know, uh, later on. So I think in, I mean, really today, if you want to get a higher education, in most countries you can. You know, higher education is mass educational. Why do you force kids to select to choose um I mean, into this artificial, useless testing?
0: Yeah, yeah, agree.
1: Um, and young, wh- where can people find the book? Uh, they can find it either on Amazon or they can find it by the, to the publisher Corwin, uh, okay. Corwin.com. uh dot and it's called you know, um, like 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 you mentioned, learners without borders. I really hope uh, people can read it. It's uh, it it is uh, again. It's not a how to to say oh how do you do this, but there are examples showing you how many different ways you can learn. You know, there's online massive learning systems, and children can really get engaged. You know, like fan fiction writing. Think about Scratch. You think about you know if you have an interest, you can dive in. If you actually want to like become electrician. Just get on YouTube. You really can learn how to do it, right? You want to be a great cook. You can do that. So I think the idea from our conversation is to say, how do we celebrate the individuals as agents, the individuals as capable and intentional learners and problem solvers?
0: Yeah, great. And uh, I'm going to include that in the show notes. And um, your website, can you tell people your website?
1: Yeah, my website is uh, zaolearning.com, Z-H-A-O-Learning.com.
0: Okay. To end the show, I just want to ask you, when you think about your career, what are you most proud of and what do you hope your legacy will one day be?
1: Well, I'm most proud that I have been able to pursue my interest and my strength and Become useful to somebody. I mean, the fact you are doing the interview, the fact people are reading my books, the fact that schools are inviting me to talk means that I've been able to do that, but also I've been useful. So that, that's really something I, I I hope you know I'm proud of. You know, the legacy is simple. I just want children to be respected more in schools. I want every child to become again, a confident, creative, entrepreneurial individual that, you know, they are responsible for what they do. They are responsible for the problems and they take actions. You know, by the way, I want to say one thing. I never believe schools get children ready for the future. There's no future without children. Mm. We don't prepare them for a certain future. We prepare them to create a better future. So I hope our children can create a better future so you and i can have good retirement
0: yeah awesome uh hey i want to thank you for your time uh, that's all the time we have for our episode today but i i really do want to thank you for your time and energy today
1: thank you so much andy you
0: take care okay i'm just going to close off the show and then i want to say goodbye to you so everybody thank you very much for listening to this episode with dr young zhao and i hope you come back to listen to future episodes
1: Vasily.